0: May the grace and peace of the Lord be with you all. If you have a Bible handy or if you just want to look in the worship order, our sermon text will come from Romans 14 this evening. And we are in Romans 14. We're going to continue our study of the membership vows. Tonight we are looking at our fifth membership vow, fifth and final vow. And we want to use Romans 14 as our sermon text Uh, to cover this vow. You may not know this, but my sermons are usually longer, much longer than I even intend for them to be. And I know that on a Sunday afternoon, after a long, hot day of uh, dealing with family or kids or frustrations, uh, sitting through a long sermon is probably the last thing you really want to do. And to be honest, it's one of the last things I want to do as well. I was thinking last week that my sermons are usually about seven minutes longer than I want them to be, and I'm trying to figure out how to get rid of those seven minutes. So we'll see what we do tonight, but feel free to stare at your watch if you want. Whatever keeps you awake and alert, uh, time me on it when it gets to uh, about the 30-minute mark. Start doing something like this, and I'll go, oh, well, let's see where we are, maybe 0.3 or something. We're at the end of our series on membership vows, and as you can tell, we've been walking through these vows, uh, one after another, and trying to root and ground them in the book of Romans. We've already dealt with our commitment to Christ, and now we're looking at our commitment to the church. This fifth vow really digs in deep and uh, drives home the point that we are in this thing together. So the fifth vow says, Do you submit yourself to the government and the discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Now we've already covered Romans 1 through 8, or at least touched on those in our coverage of the first three vows. And then we touched on Romans 12 in our coverage of the fourth vow. But tonight we're going to look at Romans 14 in our coverage of the fifth vow. And I point that out again to highlight the fact that all of these vows, while they are found in our book of church order, and they're printed on the back of your worship order, we hope that by now you see that they are actually rooted and grounded in the Word of God and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we're trying to get people to see is that To be a part of Christ's church, this congregation or some other congregation, means that they are going to be a part of the life of Christ and His people and that they're going to be living in the story of God. Hopefully these vows have pointed you in that direction. Now if you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word from the book of Romans, chapter 14. And we will read verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide not to put an obstacle or trap in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love." By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not about food and drink, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add His blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of His Word, and all the church says, Amen. "You may be seated." So again, we come to this fifth vow, and the fifth vow wants to know: Do you submit yourself to the government and the discipline of the church, and do you promise to study its purity and peace? Now, you might be wondering why we would go to Romans fourteen to address this question or to root and ground this question, this vow in Romans 14. We just read the, a main portion of the text and there was nothing that we read that suggested that anyone should submit to the government and discipline of the church, although there was much to be said for studying the purity and the peace of the church. Well, here's what we're going to do. I want to make the case that this text actually says plenty about church government and church discipline. And it does so implicitly, not explicitly. It does so indirectly, not directly. And this is exactly the way that church government and church discipline ought to be practiced and the way it ought to work. In other words, it shouldn't be in your face. And here's what I mean by that. Everything in the book of Romans, not just Romans 14, but everything in the book of Romans comes to us from a minister of the word and prayer. At the beginning of the letter, Paul says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit, in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine." So you see that this letter comes to us from an apostle, a minister of the Word and prayer. And he is laying down the gospel, both the indicatives and the imperatives, and he expects the church to respond to his teaching and to his leadership with a kind of obedience that grows out of their faith. And it's obedience in the Lord, not obedience to Paul that he's seeking. Along the way in this letter, Paul uh, mentions several things. He lays down principles of government that apply to all Christians. So in Romans 13, he says, "Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and that uh, and those exist." Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now the context is speaking about our responsibility to our secular civil government. But the principle that he lays down here holds true even for our spiritual and ecclesial government as well. We need to see ourselves as people who are under authority, who have responsibilities towards those who are in authority, who have been placed in authority by God. And why does he do it? It is for the service of his people. At the end of this letter, Paul commends several other ministers of the Word and prayer to the church and expects them to respond to those leaders with a kind of respect and a kind of uh, trust and a kind of forbearance that he expects them uh, even of himself. Now, what I want you to see here is that in the midst of all of these things, as Paul is writing this letter and bringing the gospel to bear on the church, he's doing so as someone who has authority in the church. Authority that comes from Christ in the gospel, and that's what he's bringing to the church. It's not his personality against theirs. It's not his skill set against theirs. Uh, He's not lording anything over them. He's simply serving them with the gospel. Paul does mention in Romans 13 that we are to, and this is broadening the scope here, that we are to pay to everyone what is owed to them. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So you see that Paul is rooting and grounding his teaching, his instruction to the church, in this principle of love. The point he's trying to make here, and the one that I want to echo, is that all the Christians at Rome had a responsibility to submit to the government and discipline which Christ had established for the church. And this government and discipline of the church are given to ministers of the word and prayer, that God has given them responsibility to direct, instruct, and correct the congregation of His people. That they are called to love and serve the church with a light hand and a gentle touch according to the gospel. And that is why Paul says later on in this letter, we who are strong are obligated and are indebted to carry the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So I hope you can hear in all of this that when we talk about the authority given to ministers of the word, to elders of the church, we're not talking about people who have a power grab and they're on a power trip to manipulate and ruin the life of people in the church. No, they are called to love and serve God's people as representatives of Christ to the church. Now, all of that to say that the insights and the instructions of Romans 14, which we just read, need to be heard in the context of Romans, in the context of what is the gospel of grace and all of these things that Paul has said about his ministry to the Romans. We need to know that these instructions did not just fall out of the sky and land in a book. They didn't just come from nowhere. They came from God's Spirit, through God's Gospel, through God's ministers, to God's people. So God expects all His people to submit to this kind of government and this kind of discipline, to this rule and to this council for His glory and for the good of His church. That's one way to think of how we deal with the first part of that vow. Do you submit to the government and discipline of the church? Government is simply a way of saying the rule, the boundaries, those who have established, the, the, that God has established in his church. But the second part of that is more practical for us, even, and I want us to look at that in Romans 14. Do you promise to study the purity and the peace of the church? Now, the fifth vow assumes that the government and the discipline of the church will lead you to pursue purity and peace. And so if you have a divisive government, if you have a divisive session, if you have an abusive session of elders... They're going to foster that in a church and you're going to have division and conflict. But this vow assumes that you're going to be serving under and alongside and with a session that will lead you to pursue peace and purity just as they are. And that's what Romans 14 uh, can help us with. In Romans 14, Paul is simply applying the gospel of grace to a cross-cultural church in a deeply pastoral way. Now, there was a time in my life, a time in my ministry, when I actually thought that Romans 14, 15, and 16 were sort of like the, uh, the leftovers of Paul's thought. Like he just tacked it on at the end, and you kind of wondered, how does that fit with the rest of the book? But the more I spend time in Romans, the more I realize that, and scholars have pointed this out, I had a professor that pointed this out, uh, that Romans 14 is kind of the point of the book. Paul has been talking about how Jews came, uh, the gospel came to Jews and the gospel came to Gentiles and they came to Christ by faith. And the whole book is about how do you get these cross cultural people to live and work and love and serve together? How do you get these people together with all of their differences, all of their diversity? How do you get them to come together in Christ? And when you get to Romans 14, you see that there are fault lines and fraction points between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and and between Gentile Christians who want to be more Jewish and between Jewish Christians who want to be more like Gentiles. And you've got all of these issues in the church, and Paul wants to address that. On the surface of things, you might read through this and think it's impossible. It's impossible to get people with such diverse opinions and strong convictions about things and bring them together. On the surface, it might even look like all of their problems of diversity will outweigh the potential for unity. It certainly feels that way. And you can even read some of your own story into this and see how difficult it is to get along with others who are different than you. The question that comes up usually when people read Romans 14 is, who are the weak, who are the strong? And then as we make application to life, we begin to look at each other that way. Which of us is weak, which of us is strong? And of course, if you're like me, you've never met anyone who claimed to be the weaker brother. Everyone claims to be the stronger brother. Everyone claims to be the one that's in the right. When Paul addresses this, he doesn't even cast judgment or make a value judgment about which side is more right than the others. He does lump himself in with a group. I'll show you that in a moment. But he does so without really despising or, or criticizing the other side, because he wants us to see that there's something more at stake here than whether the strong team is right or the weak team is right. He's trying to get them to see that you shouldn't even have those two teams In your congregation. So you have a church here that's diverse, ethnically diverse, culturally diverse, spiritually diverse, all of that. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles. And here's what's happening here's a little context. Some members of this church are more mature than others, they are the strong brothers. And then others are not as mature as others, and they're the weak brothers. Some members are elevating their ethnicity above the grace of the gospel. And others are elevating their traditions and their preferences above the rest of the church and the needs of the church. So Paul characterizes this as a small, uh, as the strong and the weak. Here's what it looks like in, in the text. The strong are the people who ate and drank anything and everything and they did not keep the Sabbath day or other holy days. They considered all days alike. And then you have the weak who did not eat and drink every kind of food, but they did keep the Sabbath and other holy days the same way the Jews did. So that's really the phrase there, is the same way the Jews did. That's what they were striving for. So each side believes that it's right. Each side believes that it's right. They believe the other side is wrong. And yet Paul is arguing that positively, there is a way for both sides to actually be Right? And, negatively, there is a way for a person to be wrong even though they're right. Okay? And that's what we're going to try to look at here as we make our way through this text. Now, how, is it, how can a person, how can both sides be right? And how can, uh, how, how can both sides be right? And how can someone be wrong even if they are right? Well, it matters how you look at this, and you must look at it in light of the gospel of grace. So the way for both sides to be right before God on these matters is to keep in mind that Paul is talking about matters of opinion. These are disputable matters. These are matters upon which few people can agree. Bo and I are part of a A discussion group, a Facebook group that involves PCA elders from across the nation. And just this week, someone dared raise the question from Romans 14, what kinds of things could we fill in from our modern context that would be equivalent to the issues they faced with food and drink and days and all of that? And it's been interesting to see the responses to that. Because if you have a hobby horse and you want someone to address it, you could roll it in there and say, yeah, this it's a disputable matter, right? You could roll almost anything in. Movies and entertainments and time spent with your family and all of these different issues. What I want us to see here, we're just going to focus on the issues that Paul mentioned and try to extract from here the principles that he lays down for us. This is how Both sides of an issue, of a disputable issue, can be right in light of the gospel. Number one, if people on both sides welcome one another, just as Christ welcomed them. Some translations read, accept one another. But welcome is a much better translation to be preferred. Welcome means, I receive you as you are. Just as you are, into my life, into my home, into my fellowship. I receive you, even if I don't agree with your opinion on some matter. I receive you. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He doesn't say, welcome each other's opinions and accept each other's opinions, welcome the person, your brother, your sister in Christ who has a very different view of some controversial matter than you do, welcome that person in Christ. Why? Because God has welcomed you. You think that brother or sister is different than you are? Just imagine how different you are from God. And God welcomes you. You can both be right and hold to your opinions if you welcome one another in the Lord welcome one another in the Lord. We agree on Christ even if we differ on the best way to honor God with our diets and with our days. That's Paul's point, isn't it? We agree on Christ even if we differ with each other on the best way to honor God with our diets and our days. Another way we can both be right, both sides can be right, is if people on both sides are fully convinced in their own mind, fully convinced of their own position in their own minds. And here's what I think Paul is getting at. A person with a half-baked opinion is often more divisive and more destructive than a person with a hard-baked opinion. Why? Because often in his desire and efforts to work through an issue and to think out loud and get others involved in it, he often causes more trouble than he means to. He raises doubts and concerns that weren't there before. And so it can be very problematic for people who have never considered the other side of an issue. So as Paul points out, there can be some unintended consequences Unattended consequences look like complaining about different perspectives or criticizing different practices. So when you face a disputable matter, here's what you need to do. When you face a disputable matter in your own life or in your own community, here's what you do. You do your best as an individual to work it out with the Lord in private first. Do as much of the hard work as you can do alone and by yourself. Wrestle with that stuff. Stay up late. Get up early. Read fat books. Read skinny books. Make phone calls to people outside your community that might be able to help you. But don't bring all that to your community just yet. And then when you find out that there are others in community that are wrestling with it, then you can go to them and say, let's work this out together. Here's why I say this. Because what edifies one person may not edify another person. We're not all edified by the same things, in the same way, at the same rate. I'll give you one example. Recently, I started using the Book of Common Prayer to help me with my prayer life. I'm very weak at prayer and I need some help with my prayer life. And this is a good tool that a friend recommended to me. So I've been trying to use it morning and evening to cultivate a better prayer life. It's a resource that I'm using, but guess what? I'm free to use it. I'm convinced it's a good resource for me, but I am not going to impose that on you. I don't expect any of you to use it. You're free to do so if you'd like, and if you want to ask questions about it, I can help you, but it's a personal matter. It's a private matter. I don't expect everyone to do it. That's one example. Some of you have things in your life. There are certain foods and drinks that you enjoy. There are adult beverages that show up in your refrigerators or on your tables when you go out to eat. But there are others of you who would never think of having those things in your house or on your table at a restaurant. And that's okay. You can both be right. You can both be right on that opinion so long as you're both fully convinced in your mind. You've done the hard work. You've done the research. You've thought through the issues. You've really weighed it out and you've, you've landed somewhere that's good for you, good for your family, but not, not necessarily good for others and their families. Can you live with that? Okay? Another way you can both be right is if people on both sides stop passing judgment on each other, but rather decide not to put obstacles or traps in the way of each other. You see this? You can both be right if you decide to stop passing judgment on one another. Now, I'm not suggesting that you all spend your days passing judgment on each other. That's not the point. I'm simply echoing what Paul said about ways we can pursue peace and unity in the church. We've got to develop a gracious outlook on life, gracious outlook towards one another, where we tend—let's say our default mode is to look at each other with mercy and love, and not so much with uh, justice and and uh, and with trying to figure out what's wrong. We don't want to have that eye for each other. We want to look at each other as much as we can through the lens of the gospel. We're not Jesus, and we can't see each other exactly the way He does. But that's what we're striving for, which means that we're going to give each other the benefit of doubt. We're not going to worry so much about who's doing what and when they're doing it and what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they're doing it. We're going to develop this gracious outlook where we're giving each other the benefit of doubt. We're loving one another as fellow servants in the Lord. Now, can we encourage each other? Can we nudge each other? Can we stir each other up to love and good works? Can we bump each other along? Yeah, we can do all of that stuff. But not for the purpose of passing judgment, but simply for the purpose of encouraging one another to walk with the Lord and to live by His Word. That's the important thing here. So our purpose and goal is not to get other people to do things our way. Our purpose and goal should be to to get people to do things the Lord's way, each one in his own time, each one according to the grace and faith that's at work in them, not necessarily the grace and faith that's at work in us. And the reason I have to say that is because, remember, Paul is talking about stronger and weaker brothers, And the stronger brother often expects the weaker brother to act like he is and to have the same convictions and tolerances that he does, but the weaker brother hasn't arrived to that point yet. And furthermore, the stronger brother tends to think of himself more highly than he ought. Sometimes that happens, and Paul says, remember from a couple weeks ago, don't do that. The stronger brother will tend to think of himself as the standard for everyone else. But Paul doesn't say that the stronger brother is the standard and that the weaker brother has not lived up to the standard. Paul is saying whether you're strong or whether you're weak, you've got to notice that the standard is Jesus Christ. And so the stronger brother has not yet arrived, nor has the weaker brother. So each one is growing according to the grace that's in their life, according to the faith that's in their life. And as they grow together and walk together, they need to lay down their rights so that they can travel together instead of laying down traps to catch each other in some fault. That's what Paul is getting at here. Another way both sides can be right on these matters of opinion is to keep in mind that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Keep in mind that each of us will give an an account of himself to God. Now this is a sobering thought because it goes beyond just each of us will give an account of himself to the session. Or each of us will give an account of himself to the person to our right or left. No, we, each and every one of us, will give an account to God. As we confess, Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And when He comes to judge the living and the dead, He is not going to appoint any of us as His co-judges. He's not going to ask any of us to help Him pass judgment on everyone else. He is coming to judge the living and the dead, and each and every one of you will give an account for your life to God. You will answer for you. I will answer for me. And only the Lord is able to determine... Who pleases Him and who does not please Him? Only the Lord can do that. So what that means is, is if the Lord approves of you, you are approved. But if the Lord disapproves of you, then you are not approved. The one He approves will stand. The one He disapproves will fall. And yet Paul again, looking at us through the light of the Gospel, through the lens of the Gospel, says that Jesus is able to make us stand. He is able to uphold us and to make us stand. Why? Because we're in Christ. We're in Christ. So when we stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account of our life, of our diet and our days, and anything else we fill in to that controversial matter of opinion ex-file, we will be giving an account of ourselves as men and women and children who are in Christ. Now, what is it that pleases the Lord? Paul makes it clear throughout Romans 14 that what pleases the Lord is not just diets and days, as some people would say, but devotion to Jesus Christ. What pleases the Lord is always faith never works. Paul says the kingdom of God is not about special diets and sacred days. It's not about food and drink, but about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. Isn't that interesting? acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, another way we can all be right, both sides of any issue, uh, any matter of opinion can be right, is by pursuing what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It's at the end of Romans 14. Pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What's the idea of pursue? It means you're chasing after it, you're seeking it, you have uh, your, your intent and you're deliberate about going after these things. It's not a casual instruction, but a formal instruction. Go for peace. Get after it. And look for ways to build up the body. You know as well as I do that the default mode of most people is to do whatever is right and good for me, myself, and I. And it's sad to say, but it holds true for Christians as well as non-Christians. In this context, you've got the Christian who eats meat and drinks beer, He does it by faith with a good conscience. But he might be showing little regard for the Christian who cannot do that in good conscience. And likewise, you might have the Christian who keeps the Sabbath by faith and a good conscience who scorns other Christians who do not. We've seen this kind of thing happen in recent days. I've got friends who are on both sides of this issue who are wrestling through this. Very difficult. Each side wants the other side to change their perspective. Each side wants the other, chi- other side to conform to their practice. Both sides forget that Christ alone is the standard, not my conscience and not my convictions, but Christ is. So what we need to do is we say, how can we pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding? Well, we want to do that by pursuing Jesus, by following Christ. Now, I understand that when you hold to something dearly, when you are convinced of something, you don't want to give up on it easily. None of us do. I was in a conversation with a, a man just this past week who feels like if he changes his mind on some of these things or changes his approach that then somehow he's compromising or dying on the inside. And I said to him, "Yes, it can feel like a death. It can feel like a death to make, you know, to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. It can feel like a death, and it is a death. It is a death to self for the life of others. When we lay down our lives and set aside our rights and cast aside our preferences for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are taking up the cross and following in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ for their sake. As Paul reminds us, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And so we've got to be careful about what we do with our personal convictions on controversial matters. Before publicizing our personal convictions on controversial matters, we need to ask whether it will promote peace or provoke division. We need to ask whether it will build up the members of the body or tear them down. And if you ever find yourself unsure of what that will do, of what your personal convictions on a controversial matter might do, if you're ever unsure about that, go ask your session. Hey, should I promote this? Hey, should I bring this up? And let us help you walk through that and work through that. And if we don't know, then we'll say, let us go ask some guys in our presbytery. They might be able to help with this. Why? Why? Because we've all taken vows to do what leads to the peace and purity of the church. We're interested in the unity of the body of Christ, not just its diversity. So when we think about this, this vow, what does this mean? Keeping this vow would mean that we are going to make it a way of life to die and to rise in union with Christ. And what is it that Christ has taught us? What is it that Christ has demonstrated with His own life? He shows us that there is only one hill worth dying on. And He already died on that hill, so you don't have to. Be very careful about what you think is worth fighting for. Make sure that it's something that Christ would fight for, something that He would die for. I've heard about preaching before. People, I've heard someone say that, Uh, after preaching, a man was asked, did Christ have to die for you to preach that sermon? That's something to think about, not only in preaching, but in life, isn't it? Did Christ die for this issue? Are my rights and my freedoms, my liberties, so important that others can be hurt? And that leads me to this very final thing here. There There is a way to be wrong even if you are right on matters of opinion. Have you ever thought about that? That you can be really right about something. You could be dead right about something. Theologically, objectively right about something. And still be wrong about it. How? Well, Paul in Romans 14 sides with the stronger brothers on matters of diet and days. And he does so without shaming weaker brothers. He simply says... These are my convictions. I'm I'm siding with the stronger brothers. We know that because in Romans 15, the extension of of this uh, context, he says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. So he identifies with the strong, but he's very concerned about the weak. He sides with the stronger brothers on these matters. But notice what he says in verse 14. I want to highlight this for you. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That's what he knows. These are his convictions. He's persuaded. He's thought through this issue. He's done everything that he's asked the church to do. And this is the conclusion he's reached. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. And who's going to argue with Paul, right? And he says, But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. He's looking out for the conscience of the weaker brother. He's showing empathy and sympathy towards their view, and more specifically towards those people. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 15. Here's his pastoral counsel on the matter: Pastoral counsel to the strong. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The word grieved there means to make someone sad, to cause grief, to stir up distress. What's Paul's point? If your public consumption of your private convictions distresses your brother, you are despising and destroying your brother in order to delight yourself. And that is not the way of the cross. That's what he's getting at here. What is the way of the cross? The way of the cross says that I'm going to make every effort to pursue what leads to purity and peace for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to lay down my rights. I'm going to lay down my liberties. I'm going to lay down my convictions. I'm going to lay down my knowledge for the sake of love. Because that's what I owe my brothers and sisters, is love. So Paul is very serious about these matters. In conclusion, he says at the end of Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So very strong words against those who despise others and cause division. But we want to be a people who submit to our government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace. Here's something you can do by way of practical application. Work your way through Romans 14 again and do two things. First time through, pretend you're the strong brother on some issue or the strong sister as it might be. Work your way through. Assume that you are the strong one. And ask, what does the gospel require of me? And then work your way through it again and assume you are the weak brother or sister and ask yourself the same question What does the gospel require of me? And I think what you'll find is that the gospel requires the same thing of you, whether you are weak or strong. It requires you to love your brother more than you love yourself, it requires you to take up your cross daily. It requires you to study the purity and the peace of the church and to do whatever leads to mutual upbuilding. Whether you're weak or strong, those are your responsibilities in the gospel. And let us pray that God will grant us the grace to put these things into practice.